Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. I'm not sure I can handle this though. You're switching, switching sides on me. You're usually over here. Now you're over here. We need to move closer to the front. Oh, oh boy, is this like something you do every couple of weeks? Just speakers. Okay, very good. All right, well, as usually, we're going to uh, review our memory verse for January. Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. And uh, in red there, we have our the, the theme for the year about Christ building the church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. So this morning, what we'll do, we'll go through it phrase by phrase, and then we'll put the whole thing together and try to, try to say it. We won't say the reference at first with the phrases, but we'll just um, repeat the phrases a couple times and then and then um, try to try to say them from memory. So the first part we're going to um, oh let's see here. We'll just go to that first line, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. Easy phrase to start. Let's all say that together. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. Let's say that again. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. Once again. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. And then we've got a couple of promises here. And upon this rock, we got two, I will build my church. And the second one is the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's all say that together. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's say that again. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One more time without looking. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we got God's Jesus' pronouncement of, of Peter's new, uh, Peter's name, and then we got these two promises. Let's all say those two phrases together. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One more time. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, and then we got the next part. The next phrase will be, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Let's say that a couple times. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Again. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then we'll say it from memory. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then we got two more phrases that are very similar. First of all, it talks about what you will bind on earth, and then it talks about what you shall loose on earth. So let's say that those phrases together. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And remember that the tenses that are used there, shall be loosed, shall be bound, is a future perfect passive. A very interesting tense there. Okay, let's say that again. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, 
and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, let's say that part from memory. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, let's say the whole thing. We'll do it twice. The first time, you can use whatever helps you need, and then the second time, we'll do it from memory. And we'll say the reference before and after. Matthew 16, 18 through 19. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Okay, this is Matthew 16, 18 through 19. All right, this time let's try to say it without any help at all. Matthew 16, 18 through 19. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, 18 through 19. Okay, I hope that sticks with you this week and that various times throughout the week you can meditate on that. Earlier this week, I was over near Gongchanyok, Gongchan Station, and um, being near that station brings back some old memories. Um, and I actually took just a little walk from uh, the Gongchan Station to the old, the last building that we used to meet in for a church. It's just a short walk from Gongchan Station. And I, I went over there and looked at the building. It's still there. I think the two buildings on either side are different. They've been destroyed and put up again and um, brought, back, brought back some old memories. So that was the, when I was growing up here, that was uh, one of the buildings that we used. Um, do you remember that, Dr. Chun, being there? Do you remember the building before that? Yes, near uh, Sarang Station. Uh, we was uh, a walk up a hill, and um, it's been a long time since I've been there. I'm sure you remember that, Brother Nam, being there. And we didn't move into this building. I'm not sure when it was. Maybe it's a 2004. Okay, uh, that was right after I left for college, and so I never remember moving into this building. But my growing up years were over near uh, Bongchan and near Sadan Station. And we also, when I was growing up here in Korea, we didn't live here nearby where my parents have been staying for the past number of years. Um, we lived way out, the other side of Kwanak um, other side of Kwanak San, um, Sangon Yok was where we lived, quite a ways away. It was quite a trip for us to, to make it. So those are, those are my memories of, of growing up here in Korea. Um, over at uh, Sangon uh, Yok, uh, where we lived, we lived in the 900 apartments. Um, we lived right, right at the foot of, of the mountain, Surisan, 
very nice. We, we would do a lot, many, much, much climbing. We had a very many with four boys. We loved climbing the mountain and exploring. But on that mountain, um, there were a number of Buddhist temples that, that I would see on a regular basis. Uh, one of the things I would do, would, I, would, I would love to go uh, biking. And uh, if you went down the mountain a ways, there was a cement road that went up to a Buddhist temple. But then the road continued as a dirt road went down the other side of the mountain, and there are very, uh, very wonderful places to bike. But very often, um, many times, I would pass by that, that Buddhist temple. Um, I was just looking up uh, yesterday to see how many Koreans would claim to be Buddhist. And I think what I saw right now, it's 16%. 16% of Koreans would, would claim um, to be Buddhist, one of the traditional uh, religions here in Korea. Um, and so I'll, growing up, I had some exposure to, to this idolatry uh, that we see in, in Buddhism, this, this serving of, of other gods. But I didn't really, I didn't really know what idolatry was until I went to India. And then there you see what idolatry really is with the millions of gods everywhere. You cannot get away from it. There's no getting away from it. I mean, here in, in Seoul and in Korea in general, you know, pretty much you don't have a whole lot of, you don't see a whole lot of evidence of Buddhism like you would in India, see evidence of, of Hinduism. But for instance, if I want to go to the ATM machine in uh, where we are at the college, uh, it's just a two-minute bike ride for me. But how many temples do I see? Well, I pass one right outside the gate, and then there's another shrine that's on the left. I think there might be another shrine at a tree on the right. And then there's a larger temple as I come around the corner, and then there's the ATM machine. So that's at least four types of worship areas that I pass two-minute bike ride from, uh, from here. And then if I go to the store, I pass some of those shrines again, and I pass some other, other temples as well. Everywhere you go, there are temples and temples and gods and little uh, shrines set up to some, to some random god that they made up. This morning, we'll be looking at the first commandment. We've spent two weeks uh, introducing the Ten Commandments, and finally this morning we will get into commandment number one, the command to have no other gods. No Buddha, no Ganesha. Ganesha is the popular god where we are in India. It's an elephant god, and the temple uh, to Ganesha is right down the road. And uh, very often we hear we hear that temple, they have loudspeakers and they like blaring their temple music. Let everybody hear um, that they're still there. No Lakshmi is another god in India. No Kali is another very gruesome god. One of the things we've discussed about the Ten Commandments is why God gave us the Ten Commandments. Can any of you remember, I had three reasons. Can any of you remember any of those reasons? Why did God give us the Ten Commandments? To show us the need for a Savior, because we're constantly breaking the Ten Commandments. What's another reason? 
It's a demonstration of what? It's a demonstration of our sinfulness. But it's also a demonstration of, of God's character. The Ten Commandments reveal God's character, what he is like, the things that he approves, the things that he disapproves, things that please him, the things that displease him. And the third one, we didn't spend a whole lot of time on this, but the Ten Commandments help to restrain sin in society. And that's one of the reasons God mentions that um, at the end of Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments are not given to us to teach us how to be saved. We don't keep the Ten Commandments to gain salvation. Um, we don't keep the Ten Commandments to earn favor with God. That's not why we have the Ten Commandments. Galatians 5.18 tells us that if we are led by the Spirit, we are not under the law. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So why are we talking about the Ten Commandments if we are not under the law, according to Galatians 5.18? Well, when Galatians talks about being under the law, it's talking about putting ourselves under the constraints of the law to obtain our justification. So it's not talking, you're not under the law. It's not saying that we are free from obeying the law. Okay, now we can commit adultery, right? We can covet, right? We can dishonor our parents, right? We're not under the law. Well, when Galatians talks about not being under the law, it's not talking about that. It's talking about keeping the law, being under the law for our justification. We are not under the law to obtain our justification. It's not the means by which we, we become justified before God. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. That is how we are justified. And our obedience to the law follows, it's a result. Obedience to the law is a result of our justification. It follows our justification. It does not precede our justification. We obey the law because we are justified. Not so that we can become justified. And that needs to be very, very clear. We obey the law because we are already justified, not because, not so that we can become justified. Before we jump into the first commandment, I want to make two observations about the Ten Commandments. First of all, as you look at the Ten Commandments, you'll notice that we have some long commands and some short commands. Half of them are long, half of them are short. And what I mean is that commandments 2, 3, 4, 5, and 10 have additional explanation. So if you go to, if you're in Exodus 20, uh, if you go to verse 4, it says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is heaven above, on the earth beneath, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Uh, but God is a jealous God, showing mercy to thousands. And so verses 4 through 6 is the second commandment. Lots of explanation about this commandment. But some of them are very, very short. And so the first commandment, verse 3, is a very short commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, so some of them are just short. Um, commandment 1, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment number 6, you shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. 
and then the others have this additional explanation about them. And there's, it's about half and half that, that kind of have that um, distinction. Now the first two commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven images or carved images, they may seem uh, very similar at first, but, but they're actually quite different. You shall have no other gods before me, verses, you shall not make for yourself a graven image. And the distinction between those two is that the first commandment answers the who of worship. No other gods, Yahweh alone. Commandment number two answers the how of worship. How are we to worship this one true God? Not with graven images. Okay? So the first commandment answers the what of worship? What, what question does it answer? Who are we to worship? And commandment two answers what? What's the question it answers? The how of worship. Commandment number one, who are we to worship? Commandment number two, how are we to worship this one true God? The second observation I want to make about the Ten Commandments has to do with positive commands and negative commands. So some commands are long, some are short, and we have some commands that are positive, some commands that are negative. Some commands are prohibitions, do not do this. Other commands are positive commands, do this. Now, most of the commands are prohibitions, like commandment number one, no other gods before me. Commandment number two, you shall not make any graven images. But then we have some, two commands in the middle, commands four and five are positive. Do you remember what commandment number four is? It's got eight words in it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, that's a positive command. This is something that we are to do. And then the fifth commandment. What's the fifth commandment? Uh, honor your father and mother. Okay, another positive command. All the others are negative. You shall not do this. But even though we have these positive commands and negative commands, all of them have both sides to them. All of the commands that are stated negatively have a positive side to it. Okay, so you shall have no other gods before me, but you shall worship the one true God. Okay? So all of them do have this positive aspect to them. And the ones that are stated positively have a negative aspect to them. So honor your father and your mother, and you shall not what? Dishonor them. Okay? Or remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And you shall not profane the Sabbath by treating it as an ordinary day. So we're looking at the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And the positive aspect of that is that you must worship Yahweh as the only true God. So that's the theme of the, the emphasis of, of this lesson today. You must not worship any other God but Yahweh, the only true God.
you must not worship any other god but Yahweh, the only true God. God introduces himself in verse 2, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, your God. You shall have no other gods before me. I am Yahweh, the one true God, and you shall not worship any other gods. So I'd like to unpack this short command to, and explain exactly what this means. And then uh, probably next week, we will look into how this commandment applies to us today. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So what does this mean? Well, we'll divide this into two parts. First of all, no other gods, and then before me. First of all, no other gods. This literally reads, there shall not be to you other gods. There shall not be to you other gods. This is the prohibition. Now, before we explain what this verse is prohibiting, I want to explain a little bit how negation works in Hebrew. How, how do they give a, a prohibition in Hebrew, a negative command? Well, Hebrew actually, of course, these Ten Commandments were written originally written in the Hebrew language, and Hebrew actually has two different ways of giving a prohibition. You shall not do this. And there are two different ways of saying that. And one of the ways and they have two different, there's two different emphases depending on which form you use, which way you say it. One way to give a prohibition indicates an immediate and specific prohibition. It's for a specific circumstance and usually does not apply long term. Okay, so an, an example of this would be Genesis 15.1. God appears to Abraham and God says to Abraham, do not fear. Do not be afraid, Abraham. Okay? It's for this specific circumstance. This isn't long-term. It's just for God appeared to him, and Abraham was afraid. God says, don't be afraid, Abraham. Um, Jeremiah 27, verse 16. Jeremiah says, uh, God speaks to Jeremiah and says, um, do not listen to the words of your prophet. It's a, a softer way to express a negative command. But the other way to give a, a prohibition in Hebrew is very, very strong. It's for permanent and absolute prohibition. You shall not do this ever. Never, ever. This is an absolute prohibition. And this is the form that's used in the Ten Commandments. It's a very, very strong prohibition. In contrast to the other way, it could have been said, which is a softer, more softer way of giving a prohibition. And so in the Ten Commandments, we have, you shall have no other gods before me. No exception. You shall make, you shall not make any graven images. Period. A very strong, permanent prohibition. And so here, there shall not be any other gods before you, for you, before me. Period. Full stop. No exceptions. Very strong prohibition. So this is the command. No other gods for you. Now, Jacob's descendants, 
who had come out of Egypt. They had become a nation of many, many thousands of people. They had been there in Egypt for 400 years, a very, very long time. And they were familiar, very familiar with the gods of Egypt, the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. I'm sure many of them worship these gods. Amun-Ra, Hathor, Horus, Isis, Osiris, these were the gods of Egypt. And in fact, Ezekiel chapter 20, God tells Ezekiel that, verses 7 and 8, God tells Ezekiel that when the Israelites left Egypt, many of them were still worshiping these Egyptian gods. They never left the worship of the Egyptian idols. That was what they were, they were familiar with. God introduces himself in verse 2 as Yahweh, the Lord your God. This is Yahweh God speaking to the Israelites, and he says to them, you cannot have these other gods. Yahweh God is the only God that you can have. He is the only one you can worship. Yahweh demands exclusive loyalty from us. Now, let, let me raise a question for you. What is the point of prohibiting other gods if they don't even exist? If there is no reality behind the gods? Amun-Ra. It's just an idol. There is no deity behind that. Well, are there, are there other gods? It's a trick question. Yes and no. There's a temple down the road from us in India, and they worship a god called Ganesha. There's an idol in there. They call it Ganesha. It's their god. So yes, there is a god. Paul kind of deals with this, with this idea in 1 Corinthians 8. Paul is dealing with the question of what to do about food offered to idols. Is it okay for Christians to eat this kind of food that's been offered to an idol? And Paul writes that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. And what he's saying, in other words, there's no reality behind the idol. An idol is supposed to represent a god, represent, it's be, or to be a place where that god localizes his presence. And Paul is saying that there, there's no god, there is no deity behind the idol. He says that there are, uh, he admits in the very next verse, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, he says that there are, um, there are gods, there are so-called gods. He says that there are many gods and many lords, but believers know that there is only one true God, and there is only one God who made all things, and through whom and for whom we exist. So in a sense, there, there are gods. There are so-called gods. Gods that exist in people's imagination, and, and gods whose image they form. And there are many of them in India. Millions upon millions of them. That would be an example of a place where there are many of these gods. But are there other gods? 
There are gods that are gods of the imagination, but there is no deity behind these gods. There is no reality behind them. There is no divine being behind them. None of those gods has made the world that we live in. There is no divine reality behind the idols and behind the names of those gods. Paul elaborates on that more in 1 Corinthians 10. He indicates that very often that there are actually demons behind the idols that unbelievers sacrifice to. But a demon is not a god. A demon is a fallen angel. Um, a demon is a created being. There may be demonic influence behind idols, but there is no deity. There is no actual God behind that idol, behind that image, behind that name. There is no God but the one true God. Isaiah 45, 21. There is no other God besides me. The Old Testament also speaks of the, the impotence and the nothingness of these so-called gods. Deuteronomy 4.28 tells us that the, all other gods are the work of men's hands. They're composed of wood, stone. They can't even, they can't see, they can't eat, they can't smell. Isaiah chapter 2 talks about this. The gods that unbelievers worship are made by their own hands again. Man creates the God. The God does not create the man. God is not, is not an idol. These idols will vanish. So what God is prohibiting here is the worship of other things called gods here, other than him. God does not share his worship with any other being. So that leads us to another question. What is a god? If we're not to worship, you shall have, if we're not to have these other gods, we need to know what is it? What, what are these gods that we're not to have? When we think of, of worshiping other gods, we typically think of the worship of idols and images. Oh, he worship is God, worship, worships at Ganesha's temple, or he worships at the Buddhist temple. Okay, worships these idols there. But I'm not sure that the most of us here, I mean, to, to be honest with you, we've got a temple to Ganesha right down from the college. And to be honest with you, it's not a temptation for me to go to the temple of Ganesha and worship. That's, I've just never been tempted to do that. And I'm sure that most of us here are not tempted to, to go to the local Buddhist temple and, and, and worship there either. But there are other ways in which the worship of other gods demonstrates itself. Scripture is clear that idolatry and worshiping other gods is not limited to just bowing down to physical images. Habakkuk 1.11 tells us that for some people, strength is their God. They worship the God of might and of strength. Or Philippians 3 verse 19, for some people, their appetite, their belly 
is their God. Philippians 3.19 says, whose God is their belly. That is their God. They are worshiping another God, their appetite, their belly. That is what they focus on to satisfy. That is what they trust to make them happy. Colossians 3.5. If you are greedy, oh, that's commandment number 10, right? Or covetous, covetous, you are an idolater. Colossians 3.5 says, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, including covetousness, which is idolatry. It's worshiping another god. To be greedy is to serve the god of our own desires. We are trusting that having more and more will make us happy and secure. So what is a god? Philip Riken has, has written on the Ten Commandments, and I've benefited from his observations about the Ten Commandments. He defines a God. I'll, I'll give you my own definition here, but I want to show you some, some definitions that others have. Philip Riken says, a false God can be any good thing that we focus on to the exclusion of God. Any good thing that we focus on to the exclusion of God. Or another author, uh, a Dutch theologian. People can make idols of almost anything. According to the Heidelberg Catechism, he quotes that is, idolatry is instead of the one true God who has revealed himself in his word, or beside him, idolatry is to devise or have something else on which we place our trust. Trusting and anything or anyone else other than God. I define a God as something that we believe meets our needs, and which we thus love and trust. A God is anything that we believe meets our needs, and which we then love and trust. Some people believe that blank, fill in the blank. They believe that meets their needs. And they love and trust this rather than the one true God. That is having another God. Some people believe that Ganesha meets their needs. And they love and trust Ganesha. Some people believe that Buddha meets their needs. And they love and trust Buddha. But there are other things that can fill in that blank. Some people, do you believe that this meets your needs? It's going to be different for different people. And you love and trust that rather than the one true God. What is a God? Something that we believe meets our needs and which we thus love and trust. So idols can be false gods, as I mentioned. If Ganesha is your God, you're trusting him to remove obstacles to give you wisdom and luck. If you worship the Egyptian goddess Hathor, you're trusting this goddess to give you love and fertility. All of these are gods that people worship as idols, and people are trusting them to meet their needs and their wants. But gods can be more than just physical statues of gods. A God is something that we believe meets our needs. 
and which we love and trust. And so things and concepts can also be gods. We don't worship Hathor or Isis today, those Egyptian gods. But we may trust in the healing that was formerly ascribed to Isis. We may trust in the love and the fertility that was ascribed to Hathor. We may trust in the prosperity that was ascribed to Lakshmi. We may trust in the wisdom and the luck that was ascribed, that is ascribed to Ganesha. And it is this trust that is called worship. When we trust in these things, we are worshiping these things. We are ascribing to these things the worth that belongs only to God. There shall be no gods, no other gods for you. The God of wealth. We may trust in wealth that it will give us happiness and security. If I only had this much wine, I would be secure. I would be happy. Or Job speaks of the sinfulness of that, the sinfulness of trusting in riches. Job 31, 24. If I made gold my hope, if I made if I said to my fine gold, you are my, my confidence. If I did that, verse 28, this would be an iniquity deserving of judgment. If I trusted in riches, verse 28, I would have denied God who is above. That is having another God. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus explains that it is impossible to serve both God and money. That's having another God before Yahweh, the one true God. And scripture explicitly mentions other things that becomes people's gods. Habakkuk 1, strength is their God. Philippians 3, 19, for some people, their appetite, their belly is their God. Colossians 3, 5. For some people, greed, their covetousness is idolatry. Their greediness, they are serving the God of their own desires. They're trusting that having more and more and more will make them happy. That is serving another God. Each of the ancient pagan gods highlighted some aspect of the created order. The goddess of love. That, that's Venus. Or war, the god of war. That would be Mars. The god of fertility, Aphrodite. The god of arts and poetry, Apollo. The goddess of nature, Gaia. And we, we still worship aspects of God's creation in different ways. We... we we focus on these things. We believe that these things will meet our needs. And we love and trust these things rather than the one true God. So a God is something that we believe meets our needs, in which we thus love and trust. 
So God tells the Israelites in this first command, you shall have no other gods. And by this he means that they must not trust in anything or anyone else but him alone. A God is something that we believe meets our needs. No one meets our needs but Yahweh alone. And we cannot trust and love anyone else but God alone. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, what about those final two words, before me? Literally, before my face. Now, this is not saying that preposition before, uh, prepositions uh, can have a, a, uh, a frustrating variety of meanings sometimes. This is not saying that we cannot worship any God before we worship God. Okay, so you need to worship Yahweh first, and then you can worship the other gods. It's not what it's saying. Um, it's not saying that you can have other gods as long as Yahweh is the first God. It's not, it does not simply prohibit placing another God before Yahweh. This command prohibits having anything in addition to Yahweh. Do not have other gods besides me, is one way of putting it. Worship no god but me, is another way to put it. There are to be no gods before my face, is what it literally says. Or in my sight. Or a god that is over against me, that is in defiance of me. There can be nothing that might rival your devotion to God. God does not and will not share his worship with anyone or anything else. Matthew 6.24 You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve any other God in addition to Yahweh, the one true God. And you can substitute that, that wealth. You cannot serve God and blank. Anything else. This first commandment teaches us that you must not worship any other God but Yahweh, the one true God. You shall have no other gods before me. And we've seen that another God, that a God is anything that we believe meets our needs and which we thus love and trust. That's all we have time for today. That's what the first commandment means. You shall have no other gods before me. And next week, when we meet again, we'll, we'll explore applications of this verse. How, how does this apply to us today? Try to fill that out a little bit and uh, give you some ideas of how to apply this to you. I hope what we've seen today has started opening your understanding of this first commandment. All right, let's close with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've taught us in your word. We pray that we would have no other gods before you. You would 
that we would trust in you alone, that we would know that you are the only one that meets our needs. You are the only one who can give us fulfillment and joy in this life. We pray that we would trust and love you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.